Hi, this is Big Talk. Michael Glab here. My guest this week has been all around the world. Michelle Fakos, she's an art historian, an author, an entrepreneur. She has a new book out. Michelle, thanks for being on Big Talk. I'm delighted to be here, Michael. Thanks for the invitation. Now, this book, An American in Pandemic Paris, apparently, Michelle spent some time in the City of Light during the lockdown. And what came of it? This is sort of a memoir, Michelle. It is. It's not what I expected to write when I arrived in Paris on the 1st of March 2020. I was expecting at that time to leave, uh, spend two months in Paris, hanging out with friends, eating good food, dancing, listening to music. And then after two months, uh, going to Poland, where I was supposed to give a bunch of lectures during the month of May. But things turned out differently when everywhere the world changed in the early March 2020, right? And when President Macron uh, announced a lockdown there, I thought about my options. And Paris just stood out as the one I should choose. So you said, I'm going to stick. Yes, I did. How would Paris have been different than, say, Indianapolis or Bloomington in terms of the lockdown? Well, I only know secondhand how things were elsewhere, of course. Um, In Paris, there was uh, initially for more than two months confinement where you had to were supposed to stay at home. Uh, and you couldn't wander more than one kilometer, which is like two-thirds of a mile from your place of residence. Hmm. Just and, to go get your baguette, I would assume. Huh? Exactly. You, and, and all shops, the same as I think many places in, in the U.S., except for in France, they had a nationwide policy. And so uh-huh. all rules and regulations relating to the pandemic were enforced mostly throughout the country with some regional differences depending upon how virulent the the virus was at the moment in a particular place. But I had a lot of freedom there, which I think people didn't have in other places. And as a person who enjoys a lot of solitude, that the lack of sociability didn't really bother me too much. (laughs) So you're sort of a loner. I suppose a little. I'm a very sociable loner, I suppose. A sociable loner. (laughs) I like that. Well, Primarily, you're an art historian. I'll give a little background on you. You're a professor of art history here at Indiana University. Additionally, you're adjunct professor in both uh, the Jewish Studies program and the Russian and East European Institute here at Indiana University. You started studying art a long time ago. You came from Buffalo, New York, which uh, is famous right now because it's under many, many, many feet of snow, which, thank goodness it's them and not us, eh, Michelle? <laughs> I don't know. I kind of enjoy those uh, snowed snow days. <laughs> <laughs> An art historian who has written books and has edited books primarily books dealing with the history of art, but there's a specific focus for your studies, and I'm thinking of Scandinavia. That is true. I focus on Scandinavia. As a matter of fact, I'm in the process right now of 
uh, organizing an exhibition that will open at the Frick Museum in Pittsburgh in mm. the fall of 2024, which will be the first ever exhibition of Scandinavian folk and fine art in one exhibition. So oh. giving parody to the supposedly, you know, art created by the peasants and also the art created by, you know, the fine artists. Well, speaking of firsts, uh, your dissertation, uh, your PhD, which you did at uh, New York University, was the first dissertation ever done by a North American on Swedish painting. Well, why? Well, uh, when I was in graduate school in New York, the man who was my mentor advisor uh, curated the first ever exhibition of Scandinavian art in the United States since uh, 1913, when there was a large traveling exhibition, which also went to Buffalo, by the way. And when I saw that exhibition, I was just bowled over. It was so different. It was so interesting. As a Buffalonian, I'm a snow lover, so all those snowy landscapes were just incredibly appealing. So I decided not to pursue French art or German art or English art, which was more common, but this seemed to be interesting and it was something I wanted to learn more about. It called you. you you've done a lot of lecturing in Sweden and in many other places as well. You lived in Sweden for a little while. You even started businesses in Sweden. You've gotten around. <laughs> yeah, moss does not grow under my feet, I'm, <laughs> I've been told. Now here you are in uh, Bloomington, Indiana. When did you get to Bloomington, Michelle Fakos? I came here in 1995 to teach, to teach at IU. Uh-huh. When you're teaching, you're teaching art history, do you do any art directly yourself? I do not. My father was an enthusiastic amateur artist, and I have dozens of sculptures that he made at home. And he, as a child, he would uh, take my sister and me on drawing exped expeditions into the forest or the seaside or oh. the backyard, trying to get us interested in, in that. And um, uh oh, did it work? I became a writer and not a drawer. So, you know. <laughs> Well, there's a, there's a little bit of a difference between writing and drawing. Being a writer myself uh, for many, many, many decades, I hate to admit, you think more linearly. Woo, boy. <laughs> Indeed <laughs> that, you do. That was tough. Whereas with an artist, you have to think circularly. Yes, I would say that's, that's accurate. So you're more of a linear thinker. I suppose I uh, when I'm when I'm writing well when I'm when I draw nothing comes from within when I'm writing things are my imagination is being triggered and fired and ideas are coming and conversations are emerging and all sorts of things are happening that just simply do not happen in my brain when I'm doing other sorts of creative activities as I say, the new book is An American in Pandemic Paris. When did you start writing? That one. Well, my first thought when I decided to stay in Paris, and the reason why I was able to stay, I could have come back uh, in the middle of March to either the U.S., which to me at that point seemed very chaotic, both in terms of how the pandemic was being managed and also politically. Yeah. And that just ex 
be ramped up during the course of 2020 from a foreign perspective. Or I could have gone back to Sweden, where I am am also a citizen. Oh. So as a result of that, I can stay in uh, EU countries or Schengen countries for unlimited periods of time. So I had an option which would not have been open to me, perhaps other people. So I started out work. I was in the midst of working on a book that I was going to continue researching in Copenhagen during the summer called Denmark and the Invention of Modern Happiness. Wow. Yeah. Well, they did. And uh, and that will come out eventually. Uh, but uh, I got to the point where I couldn't do more research without going to Copenhagen. So then I had to think of what to do next. So my next thought was to pick up writing a series of novels, none of which I finished, uh, on the li- based on the lives of women artists. Hmm. So I started out working on one I'd begun in Munich long ago uh, about uh, Gabriela Munter and her uh, romance with Vasily Kandinsky. But I found it really hard to imagine that era in Munich and Bavaria when I was in Paris. And then I thought, there were a few Parisian artists. Why don't I write about one of them? Mm-hmm. So I randomly picked Rosa Bunner, and I started imagining her. I did a little bit of research on her, but I just imagined her living in my neighborhood and knowing a lot about the 19th century and who was living there. I could envision concerts with Chopin and discussions with Baudelaire and all sorts of things. But then in September, I read Daniel Defoe's A Journal of the Plague Year. Ah. Which I had read as a teenager. And I f- read the first, you know, dozen pages, and it seemed so similar to what we all were experiencing at that time. Sure. First, people behaving a little strangely. Then the odd news report about people getting sick. Then people maybe staying at home. Then the rich people leaving in droves with their servants to country houses and people sheltering. And I thought that's what's happening to us now. And I had been keeping greater track of what I my daily activities, uh, since there were so few of them uh, (laughs) during the pandemic. And I thought, I'm just going to write a Daniel Defoe journal of the plague year, only my year in Paris. So I started writing it in September of 2020. So you were seeing it just as a personal journal at first, rather than a book? Um, no, I envisioned it as a book ah, at that moment. Okay. Because I, be, because I also thought then, uh, because I was, you know, uh, Zooming and virtual talking to a lot of friends and family, and they were all wondering, what's it like in Paris? How come you're having so much fun and we're miserable? (laughs) Um, So I thought, well, I should write a little bit about that. So there's a number of things. There's a kind of hero's journey arc, uh, my search for recovery from a tragic romance. Uh, Yes, um, which gotta have that. Hollywood demands it exactly. So for much of the uh, my time there, I was engaged in internet dating, you know, senior style. So there's a lot of that in there uh, <laughs> for those who are curious about what that's like in France. One of my one of my dates wondered. Uh, he knew all about what French kissing was, but he was very curious about what American kissing might be <laughs> because he had never kissed an American before. So there were a lot of really kind of interesting cultural encounters uh, in that domain. 
And then <laughs> that just went, that one just blows me away, Michelle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what is American kissing? I just don't know. Is it a peck on the cheek? I, I have no idea what this what this gentleman like envisioned, but he was filled with very Franco-centric, funny platitudes and ideas that were, <laughs> you know, made, enlivened my time there. How long did it take for you to finish the manuscript? I started it in September uh, 2020, and I, w- well, about a year, I would say. And then I, you know, tidied it up over <laughs> the course of another year, I suppose. Well, you know, one of the things about writing or any creative endeavor is you never know when it's finished. It never feels finished. It, you you basically have to say to yourself, that's it. I'm done. And and let someone else get their hands on it. Exactly. And did you go to an editor then? I thought about, yes, I did initially. So I do profession, professionally, I'm editor of an international that arts is, journal. Yeah, uh, arts. It's called arts, yes. It's called arts, yes. And I also do a lot of um, translating and copy editing, uh-huh. line editing, developmental editing. I do a lot of editorial work myself. So, but I, of course, one is... Um, one is blind when one dealing with one's own material, so I naturally thought I needed uh, to find an editor. So I sent uh, three pages out to eight different editors, mm-hmm. uh, all who had good reputations. And I embedded, in addition to how I was just writing, I embedded several purposeful mistakes to see if they would catch them so I could tell yeah. Well, you're the sly one, aren't you? Well, you know, you're <laughs> checking them out, so yeah. it seemed to be logical. So I did that, and only one of them caught these purposeful errors, hmm. and those were the only errors that she saw. <laughs> so the other ones were trying to rewrite and make yeah. things in other tenses and yes. wondering if the if the Boulevard Saint-Michel really didn't have any traffic on it because she had never been to Paris and maybe uh, – anyway – so I thought for the four grand, I'd have to pony up to pay someone to do this. And if all they're going to find is mistake, yeah. So I thought, I'm just going to do it myself. And I have a f- couple of friends who are, uh, I have a friend who's a professional editor. I have a friend who's a professional uh, proofreader. So I just send it to them. And there are still a couple of misprints in it. But uh, that that but always that, happens, as we know. Exactly. When you were finished, did you feel a sense of, Grief or loss? I felt, felt, I guess, a a sense of excitement because for me, this is a book, first it's profoundly autobiographical. Yeah. uh, And it talks about a lot of things that I don't talk about with people. So so that was kind of a difficult hump to get over. But then I also thought, how much privacy do we really have nowadays anyway? (laughs) So yeah, I just, exactly. So I just thought I'm opening the floodgates. And then when I was done, I was just really kind of excited about how other people would receive it. Yeah. And I still am. I mean, it's the, the other books that I've written, you know, sometimes I get feedback, but they're works that mostly specialists or students are going to read. Uh, and every now and then I get, you know, people writing to me, uh, you know, appreciating what I've done. But I really like the idea of having something that would be like my dream, which is to see it in every airport bookshop. Ooh, beautiful. So, yeah.
Michelle Fakos is an art historian, an author, and an entrepreneur. She has just come out with a, a pretty much an autobiographical work, a memoir, as it were, of her time in Paris during the lockdown. It's called An American in Pandemic Paris. Michelle, you're an art historian. You know your art, uh, backward and forward. You know artists. And I like to think, I wonder... During the lockdown, we weren't supposed to go be around each other. We weren't supposed to go out in big gatherings and so forth. Would that have been beneficial to an artist, sort of forcing an artist to stay home and do work? It could well, undoubtedly, but I think for musicians and for performing artists it was a oh, nightmare right it, it, yes you need people exactly um so uh in that area but most of the artists that i know fine artists that you know are in their studios making objects most of the time they often live a kind of hermetic existence under normal circumstances yeah. so uh, the ones that i spoke to their lives didn't change all that much because they've just you know, they're living like hermits in their studios and right. going out every now and then. And, yeah, so their lives – just the way I think the lives of people in the countryside changed a whole lot less than people who lived in – people who lived in more ur- – live in more urban areas. In the countryside, you're just not around people. And in the That's towns, right. you had to change your behaviors. Before you became a noted art historian, and, boy, you have quite – the CV regarding this stuff. You got a Fulbright scholarship in 1993. You have been lecturing all over. You've been a guest and or visiting professor at, for instance, Hamburg University, East China Normal University in Shanghai, Warsaw University, Greifswald University in Germany. You know your stuff, but it wasn't the first thing you did in your life. As a matter of fact, one of your first jobs was as a paralegal. It was. Uh, after I graduated from college, I moved to New York City, and I decided to wait before I went to graduate school. <clears throat> so during the time I was a paralegal, I took one course a semester at you know Columbia mostly or at Hunter College. And then afterwards, I, I knew I was going to go to graduate school in art history from the get-go. Uh-huh. So it was always there. Yes, it was. Yeah. But working as a paralegal, was it was a, the beginnings of paralegal-dumb or whatever. That, that yeah. ju- there were no training programs. You just, if you could read and you were intelligent and you could do research, you know, you just kind of did it. So, so it was on the job training, that type of yeah, thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that was a very nice experience. Did you enjoy it? I liked it a lot. I worked very long hours, but it was a kind of, uh, I traveled a lot as well. And traveling, you know, where you'd say, you know, should I stay in, you know, uh, Travel Lodge or can I stay in Holiday Inn? They, 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 they say, stay at the Ritz-Carlton for all we care. You know, so it was really kind of luxurious travel conditions. Oh, so these for lawyers. a 21-year-old, it was yeah. pretty pretty nice lifestyle. As I said before, your dissertation, which you eventually got about 1989 from New York University, Northern Light, Realism and Symbolism in Scandinavian Painting. 
It's called the first dissertation ever done by a North American on Swedish painting. You were a groundbreaker. In a way, now there's a, a generation. Uh, people have always done research on, or there's a tradition in Scandinavia, Edvard Munch. He's the one who people have worked He's on. He's the one, yeah. He's the one. <laughs> um, but it turns out there's just a lot more going on uh, in all of the Nordic countries, uh, including Iceland, which now there's a new trend to explore uh, colonialism and native peoples. And so there's a whole, and of course, the Nordic countries all have a large Sami uh, population, the reindeer deer herding folk. Uh-huh. Uh, so, yeah, so so there's a lot more interest there. And also after this ex- exhibition that took place in the early 80s, uh, Northern Light was the name of the exhibition, a lot of people just became interested in it, including in the Scandinavian countries. They were, you know, thought our art is also interesting. We don't just have to study... Uh, Michelangelo and ancient Greece, you know. uh, What about us? Exactly. Yeah. Well, as you say, you're working on a new book uh, dealing with Denmark and happiness. And the funny thing is, when we think of Denmark, we generally don't think of happiness. Although nowadays there's this idea of hygge, spelled H-Y-G-G-E, or they would probably pronounce it because they all sound like they're being strangled when they speak. Yeah. Uh, which is an idea of um, contentedness and really a no worry, you know, kind of a Bob Marley kind of <laughs> attitude towards life. Well, there's a difference between happiness and contentedness. Yes, but the, with the feeling that you have enough, you don't have to worry about anything relating to survival. Yes. Which is something that people in this country, a feeling that none of them ever have known. There's never enough. Yeah. You could be a billionaire. You still don't have enough. And in, yeah. And so this process began in Scandinavia. Uh, it's not a people associate it with their social safety net and the rise of social democracy at the end of the 19th century. But the seeds of that were planted in specifically Denmark in the 18th century and related to the need to provide uh, increasing amounts of food for a growing population, which they were unsuccessful in doing during most of the 19th century or 18th century. Until one landowner who owned you know, villages and lots of other territory decided to give land to the peasants living on his land and allow them to build a house on the land they had. And instead of many par- little parcels of land, to give them one big parcel of land. Huh. And within five years on the lands where he did this, productivity increased something phenomenal. So he did that on all of his properties, and this encouraged the other aristocrats to do the same thing, to give away their land and to empower the people. So, in America, that's crazy talk. Yes. Uh, so in 1700, something like, I don't know, 15 or 20 percent of uh, land in Denmark was owned by farmers, independent farmers. Uh, by 1800, it was more than 50 percent, and huh. then it continued to escalate. And because it, the product, and then other places in Scandinavia also, you know, saw this, and then th- that was the beginning of this movement, and then it spread into other things like uh, clubs and associations where it wasn't one social demographic that belonged, but you could be a baker or a prince 
and you could belong to the same club, which oh. was not the case in other places. Sure. Yeah. Well, as we say, Michelle Fakos, you, you've been through a lot, you've done a lot of things, and as I indicated earlier in the program, you're also an entrepreneur. Uh, while in Sweden, you lived there for a while, you started a couple of businesses. One was called Nordart Design, the other was called Moose Booties. What went on there? Well, uh, Nordart Design was a company that I started... Uh, and then I ended it when I was going to spend two years in Europe and couldn't, you know, go to the post office anymore, uh, which encouraged uh, the handy jewelry mainly, handicraft of the native reindeer herding Sami. And I had, I sold things that were just magnificent objects that were really uh, museum worthy, but also more kind of utilitarian things. Sure. And Moose Booties uh, was, some, if anyone's interested in them, they should direct message me because I still have quite a few of them. <laughs> uh, yes. Um, so Moose Leather is something that uh, has, with 100,000 moose are killed in Scandinavia, every, are hunted every year in, in Scandinavia because they would otherwise starve to death. Wow. So they do a kind of assessment. Yeah. And people eat the meat. They've traditionally thrown away the skins because they're very stretchy. Oh. So they're not practical for making clothing, for instance. Yeah. But in the 90s, the Finns learned how to tan moose leather, which they did. And it's very soft. It's really nice. And I thought it'd be great to make baby shoes out of these. <laughs> so I organized, you know, bought the leather from Finland. Uh, there were a group of women near in a village near Krakow who were sewing and making these moose booties. And the person, my partner, who was in charge of marketing, did not do his part of the job, uh, and I didn't do that either. So that's a kind of failed <laughs> entrepreneurial enterprise thus And that's far. why you have a bunch of them left over. That is why I have a bunch <laughs> of them left over in my garage, yes. Michelle Fakos, uh, the art historian, the author, the entrepreneur, many hats, as many of our guests on Big Talk. Her new book is An American in Pandemic Paris. How do we get it? I hope you all will go. You can order it through your favorite uh, online book site, but I encourage all listeners to go to their favorite brick-and-mortar store and ask them to order it for them there, um, and that is entirely possible. Michelle Fakos, thanks so much for being on Big Talk. It was a pleasure, Michael. Thank you. Thank you. 